Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. We have all had times when we were outside in the bone-chilling cold. You know what I'm talking about. Your cheeks start to hurt a bit, the tips of your fingers start to feel numb, your toes ache. Most of us are lucky enough to have a place to go to get warm. But there are some in Northumberland who don't. On February 20th, people across the county are going to be asked to support a walkathon called The Coldest Night of the Year. It is meant to raise awareness about homelessness and also raise money for the Greenwood Coalition. I will speak with Phil Redford, the event organizer, and David Sheffield, the executive director of the Greenwood Coalition. They will tell us about its impact on those who face homelessness, addiction, and who live in the margins. Here is that interview. I'm so pleased to have with me today Phil Redford, the event chair of the Coldest Night of the Year Walk in Northumberland, and David Sheffield, Executive Director of Greenwood Coalition. Gentlemen, welcome to Consider This. I appreciate this uh, opportunity, Rob. Yes, thank you very much, Rob. Glad to be here. David, I noticed a post on social media and where you were celebrating a person moving into some permanent housing. Can you start off by telling us why this is something you feel is worthy of sharing? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a rare treat these days. Uh, um, I mean, the, the housing crisis has, has uh, been going on for a few years, and I know that uh, you know, probably some people get tired of hearing about it, but um, for folks that are struggling on the on the fringes of homelessness or experiencing homelessness, um, it's not very hopeful. And so when when something uh, like this happens, where uh, um, you know a solid, affordable situation uh, comes up, and and somebody can move from homelessness into a, a permanent home, um, we we really need to celebrate that and uh, um, and kind of kind of enjoy that uh, because that's. That's a, a big part of uh, you know what we're trying to do. I mean, that's the first part of what we're trying to do, and I, and so um, it was a great. Uh, and so so last week we we helped uh, one person uh, move into permanent housing, and later this week we're we're helping another person to move into permanent housing. So um, so kind of a, a big week along around uh, our world. I I noticed that when we celebrate something, it's because something is rare. Is, is this a rare occurrence in Northumberland? Yes, un- unfortunately, we, we haven't, uh, we've seen very little increase in the number of rental units uh, across Northumberland County. And, um, and as many of us have noticed the, the real estate uh, shift, um, a lot of demand for real estate and the price is going up. And then that affects, um, that affects uh, 
rental housing uh, being built. Uh, if it's if it's easier and faster to sell a property or to sell some condominiums, that's what's going to get built, not not new um, rental units. And there are some online now, uh, and and I think that uh, a couple of years from now we'll be able to, to point to a number of of new projects that um, that Northumberland County uh, has been involved with, and and uh, and a couple of private things, but um, but it's slow moving and the demand is growing at such a rapid pace and we certainly saw that um, through the the year with the pandemic uh, a lot of a lot of increased need for low-cost housing and and a lot of the folks that, that we're working with um, you know coming from homelessness or or very much on that edge um, those folks uh, the um, there's not in the market they just they don't have the income to to um, to meet most uh, apartments that come available, and uh, so when when something does work together um, with a, a fairly priced apartment or room, um, plus um, in some cases a, a subsidy uh, for a period of time that, that supplements that rent and ensures that that person can successfully stay there, then um, uh, yeah, that's a that's a it stands out a little bit on our horizon. We are in the process of going into uh, our second emergency order and uh, things are going to get even more locked down than they have been uh, for the last number of weeks and, and certainly since the spring. Can either one of you, I guess, Phil, maybe you can start off with this one. Can you give us some idea of, of what the impact is going to be as, as a board member and sitting around a table making decisions? What are some of the questions you're going to be facing going into this second emergency order? Well, thanks for that question, Rob. We are concerned about the second uh, order, uh, but we have a fully virtual component to our walk uh, that can be switched over uh, as quickly as we need. Uh, what we've opted for is a blended walk. What will influence the fact that we may or may not be able to do in-person walks is the fact that the limits of assembly will impact how many walkers we could have potentially gather at a point in time. With a blended walk, we can give the option to the walkers to decide, well, I'm not comfortable in person, so I will just uh, charge on with, uh, so to speak, um, with the virtual component. Those who do feel comfortable, um, should things be lifted in time, we could, in fact, still accommodate the in-person because uh, unlike years past, we won't have a big send-off with any gathering. There would never be any indoor component. We've had to submit a full COVID-19 plan. So we are ready to go either way. Uh, and we're fairly confident that uh, there's a big awareness of the need out there this year. Our, our donors have stepped up and we've got teams uh, coming. It makes it a little more difficult to reach out to folks but we're confident that uh, we can make that switch if we need to. So let's just step back a little bit in case people are not familiar with the coldest night of the year. Can you tell us what this event is and, and maybe frame it in the past uh, a little bit so that we understand if it was normal conditions, what would it be like and, and what's it about? 
Absolutely. Uh, coldest night of the year, uh, run under the auspices of Blue Sea Philanthropy, which is the parent uh, corporation, uh, is a national walk to aid local charities um, in fundraising for the purposes of those who work with the hurting, the hungry, and the homeless in our communities. In the past, the walk has been fully in-person um, we have approximately 144, give or take a few, locations across the country. So it is a national walk. The beauty of the walk is that any funds raised remain in the community. So we are walking for Greenwood Coalition. We have had many teams in the past. For example, last year, we had 44 teams, 259 walkers. Uh, traditionally, we have set off from the Port Hope High School, um, renting space there. We would have a big send off. Often we have uh, dignitaries, perhaps mayors, things like that. We um, have quite a range of activities for people who gather. And then we leave from there en masse, uh, going on the walk. Each walker receives a toque. And we have a lot of fun walking through the streets of town. The profile is fairly high, with sponsorship signs. And a good time is had by all. Either the 2K or the 5K walk can be done. And we have traditionally had most of the walkers experiencing about a five kilometer walk, whereupon they'll return to the high school for a chilly dinner. What we really strive for is to give people the idea, impression and feeling of what it's like to be cold. And not just cold for a little while. We hope that as people experience this walk, they'll think to themselves, yeah, my feet are getting cold. I wonder what this might be like if I was living rough, homeless, hungry, or hurting. What that entails is the ability of people to empathize. And so that's why the in-person really works so very well. Over the course of the years, we've been steadily increasing the amount of fundraising. And last year, we raised almost $72,000, which stays in the community. It's a sizable chunk of the budget for Greenwood Coalition. And again, this year, we're relying on our donors and walkers and teams uh, to help us out. Should they have to switch virtually, things will be a little bit different. The walk takes place on February 20th if those who wish to do the in-person part of the event can show up. If we switch to virtually, we will send out word and walkers will be able to, with very small groups, with those with whom they live, to do their own walk in their neighborhood. There are various ways that they could record this, verify this, uh, and do that virtually. That could take place potentially at any point in February. If we need to switch to the virtual component, we will do so fairly quickly. We have all of the necessary email connections and we will let people know immediately once that decision has been made, if it needs to be made. David, what this 
event is very important in terms of the financial stability of, of Greenwood Coalition. Can you give us a picture of what the finances have been like this year, particularly within the context of the pandemic? Yeah, um, yeah, it's been an interesting year. <clears throat> um, we're, Greenwood Coalition is um, is dependent on on um, some fundraising events and and uh, donors in the community. I mean, that's that's how we've been built. We're a community based organization. We don't have any sort of annualized funding. We're not on on any any government budget. Um, and so, so that's um, that sort of. Uh, there's pros and cons to that. One, one is uh, that uh, um, we're dependent on the goodwill of the community, um, but the, um, the pro of that is that we live in a great community that has supported us well over the years, and and keeping up those relationships and involving those individuals who support us in the bigger story is so important to us. Um, this year uh, has been an interesting year, uh, and I think we've we've um, we've felt that support uh, through the year from from our our usual partners, um, and and made a few new friends as well as people became aware of of what the need was in the community, and and so that was very encouraging for us. And um, and then the other piece uh, was um, access to emergency funds from governments and uh, and and also in, in our own community from the United Way from um, from Cameco uh, that uh, as as uh, those bodies uh, kind of redirected um, some of how they were funding um, we were out there we were on the streets we were we were doing the work we showed up and so we received some of that support through this time and so um, this this it hasn't the financial part hasn't been difficult this year um, and we've been able to um, increase our staff a little bit using some peer support staff folks with lived experience uh, who are um, lived experience of homelessness uh, addiction etc who have been able to join us uh, on staff and so that's been a, um, a really big um, uh, boost for us. So in, in a way, it was a growing year for, for uh, Greenwood Coalition. Uh, can you just tell us uh, what your annual budget was uh, year before and then your, what your budget's been this year? Yeah, so, so our fiscal year is a calendar year and we are, um, uh, and so in, uh, in 2019, our budget was around 200,000. And in um, in uh, twenty twenty, it looks like probably uh, close to a hundred thousand more than that. So, so that represents that extra staffing, extra work that we've been able to do um, to to put some more feet on the ground during the pandemic, uh, uh, as we've done that kind of outreach and individual support in in a different way this year. That's rather phenomenal because so many of the groups that I've talked to over the last year have been struggling financially to have be in the rare position to have additional monies and to be hiring people seems rather outstanding, if not unusual. So tell me a bit then about what the levels of service that you have been able to provide over the pandemic then, because I know it's it's been a challenge with all the, the regulations and the guidelines being in place um, for you to do the work that you do. 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, we're feeling the same uh, the same challenges with with restrictions that uh, others are feeling. Um, at the the beginning of the first lockdown in in March. Um, we, uh, I think we, we didn't know, we didn't know um, sort of how to turn things off because we were very much connected with, with people who had no place to go at that moment. And, uh, and so we, um, we, we shut down our sort of group programming and uh, and and that that really didn't recover too much through the year we were able to do some during the the summer and fall period but uh, for the most part our group programming went way down our community dinner uh, was was closed down immediately and and so we switched our our efforts to um, to meeting people who were out in the community uh, um, struggling uh, we partnered with transition house to work on uh, some projects and support what what they were doing so that initially so that uh, we could open up the uh, uh, emergency shelter for the daytime uh, we provided staffing there and um, and then uh, the other the other piece that uh, we saw increasing was some some organizations um, didn't feel safe to have their staff um, kind of doing face-to-face -face work in the community um, we were we were I mean we were trying to be as safe as we could but we sort of felt like we were out there already and some things some work needs to be done face to face and so so one example is um, we for a number of years we've been distributing harm reduction supplies to, uh, to people who use drugs and that's a partnership from Peterborough and uh, so they asked us to take on some extra work and cover a wider area um, for a while because we were here in, in the community so that generated some new opportunities some new relationships and uh, so, so we're we're coming out of uh, out, out of the year of that kind of work um, feeling like we've we've kind of expanded our um, network of relationships and um, uh, and there's some good opportunities um, we're, we're feeling better going into um, a, a bit more of a lockdown um, because of the connections that we got in place uh, so it's feeling quite different from the uh, initial lockdown that, that felt like it happened quite suddenly a number of key players in the area of public health released a report in November called Preliminary Patterns of Circumstances Surrounding Opioid-Related Deaths in Ontario During COVID-19. That report delivers some shocking statistics. For example, there was a 25% increase in the number of suspected drug-related deaths between March and May during the pandemic. The reasons for this include a loss of access to harm reduction, something you were just talking about, and treatment, physical distancing regulations, which further have left people using drugs alone. David or Phil, which, whoever wants to speak to this, I'd like to know what are you seeing here in Northumberland when it comes to opioids? Yeah, I, I think um, that, that report is is fairly accurate. Uh, that um, the opioid uh, crisis that uh, was was. Um, was very active and a large concern for us um, before the pandemic um, shifted during the pandemic, and um, and there was a, with people who use opioids, there was a there was a lot of fear um, initially and anxiety um, if if, um, if the the um, uh, if what they need isn't 
uh, available suddenly, um, uh, you're going to get very sick. Uh, you're going to have some some real difficulty, and so there's a lot of anxiety around that. So that was actually um, an opportunity for us to um, meet with some, some folks that we hadn't been meeting with before, and um, and talk about anxiety and and talk about options and and talk about safety. Um, there, there was a, the desperation uh, around drug use increased. Um, we we saw overdose deaths uh, continuing at about the same rate as they had before, uh, which has been um, until recently uh, about one person a month dying from an opioid overdose in in Northumberland. Most of those in in Coburg um, over the last couple of years. Um, we saw the um, we we saw the number of overdoses increasing and uh, uh, and and so people surviving those, which was uh, which was a positive and and is a result of, of um, the um, harm reduction work and having a lock on kit in in the hands of, of folks. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, treatment as well, and uh, and that's one of the one of the big difficulties. Um, so, if I can just paint a picture um, that is based on on, uh, on several um, situations, um, a person who's using um, using opioids, uh, other drugs, uh, decides it's time for a change, and they want out of that, and they want to do something. That person is living in either is either homeless. Or living in um, very marginal um, situations, maybe a rooming house, maybe sleeping on somebody's floor. They get on a waiting list for a number of months, and so they're trying to manage their drug use so that they stay alive until they get to the treatment program. Um, the government treatment programs are typically about a month long. That person gets to the treatment program, comes back out, and I. Uh, and, and has nowhere else to go except the the drug house where they were living, uh, or or living unsheltered, and so those stresses are there, and so that that cycle is really difficult to break when when there are so many pieces missing. Phil, when you're listening to these kinds of stories, and I'm sure as a board member you've heard them around the table, how important do you see it that the fact that Greenwood is being able to get out onto the streets and have been able to continue to provide naloxone kits and to work in the area of harm reduction when we've seen, especially in this report, just how devastating it's been elsewhere. What goes through your mind? What, uh, first and foremost, what goes through my mind is the need for connection, the need for community, and the need for support. That's got to come from the grassroots and that's what Greenwood Coalition does. It's absolutely crucial that we can put boots on the ground and deal with folks with that situation quickly, efficiently, and in a manner that respects the dignity, the connection, and the community of each individual, which really speaks to the heart of what Coldest Night of the Year is really about. It's about the community the streets, the grass and the roots. 
everything that needs to be built, supported and encouraged so that individuals can feel that sense of connection. Without that, in, in my opinion, it really, there, there's not much to build on. And if we can help to maintain that and just bring it right from the ground up, then not only do the individuals that we're helping and walking with succeed, but the chance of succeeding even more into the future is supported because that community connection will be there. That's what I feel is so important about the work of not only Greenwood Coalition, but also coldest night of the year to give financial support to this. It doesn't come cheap. If I can jump in there, uh, Rob, uh, the, <clears throat> uh, uh, just to um, reiterate uh, you know, Phil's point about the, the isolation and, and disconnection and, and some of the mental health concerns that, that we've uh, um, seen over the years, um, those, are, uh, those are very real things. And, and often, you know, when we think of um, what's the response to, you know, poverty, addiction, uh, homelessness, et cetera, we think of government solutions, we think of uh, structural pieces, and those things are really important and we need a healthy system that functions properly and, and uses its money properly. But there are pieces of that that are very human pieces that can best be driven from the community. And, and so um, organizations like Greenwood and, and others that, that come up from the, uh, the grassroots, as Phil says, are, are so important. And then figuring out how do they interface with the system. And uh, this year has been a, um, a really interesting year for experimenting with those things in a different way. And, and I can say that, that those, those pieces are coming together better where, where we respect both the, what the community brings when a community is activated, but also what the government can do with, um, with caring and creative people working in those offices. Well, it's really interesting you mentioned that because uh, one of the things that I'd like to get my head around, and I'm sure our listeners would too, is that these mental health services or even medical services, I mean, in the even before the pandemic, it was not easy to deal with people who were homeless and, and get them the access to these services. And now, of course, you know, it's things like Zoom calls or phone calls to a doctor or, you know, it seems like there's even more barriers just to physically even get in because you've got to have a mask and you've got to do this and that and the other thing. So what is it like here in Northumberland for people who are homeless who are, or are facing hardship to accessing mental health and health services uh, within the county? I think that we've seen some um, some good work done in that area, and I, I think that, uh, um, there are there are some people who um, who can do the Zoom call or you know that a phone call works for, um, and and I've heard heard some positive things in that way. Um, early on in in the um, pandemic lockdown, we we worked at getting uh, phones donated. We could pass out. People so that um, that we could keep up that communication a little better, so that people could uh, um, follow up on appointments. So I think there's been some improvement in that area. Um, but you're absolutely right. If I'm if I'm feeling anxious, if I'm feeling paranoid, if I'm feeling fearful, um, uh, you know, talking to somebody on a screen. 
uh, maybe, first of all, not something I've ever done before. And so therefore it's awkward and uncomfortable. And then secondly, um, you know, it can actually reinforce that distance. I mean, we've all been using these, these um, technologies this year and most of our, us aren't feeling a whole lot better <laughs> about uh, how we're connecting. And so, so for a person who's, who's new to that or is experiencing some of these challenges, um, it, that, that just, it just isn't enough. And, and that's some of what, what we've been struggling through this year. Uh, I mean, some of our best work over the years has been, you know, around a table where we eat together and, and uh, community members, you know, converse and, and share things and, uh, and then bump into each other the next day downtown. And, and these days are not bumping into people and, and we don't have those those opportunities and so so that's been a that's been a real difficulty um, for us to figure out how to do that um, and they, they the best that we've been able to do um, is working with with some folks who volunteer and and then with the additional um, peer support in the community and and just getting our staff um, out there actually you know face to face with with masks and distance and meeting people outside and and all of those things but trying to bring that that human connection uh, um, into the picture as much as possible phil i i'd be curious when you talk about the coldest night of the year and and trying to develop empathy around uh what people who are homeless face or people who are on the margin face. We know that for several months, the high school in Coburg was closed and Greenwood worked with other agencies and services to create a, a temporary homeless shelter for people. And then when the school started back and, and the system went back to the old ways of doing things. However, the Coburg police station is no longer offering services. Transition House is limited in what it can offer due, again, due to pandemic restrictions. As we enter into the more harsh weather of this winter, how hard do you think it is to find temporary shelter for people in need? And what is being done to address this, both from your activities as a fundraiser, but also from the activities of Greenwood? Well, that's a very good question. What in fact is happening? Um, and I believe David could speak to that as well. Um, what we, think of as homelessness really emanates in many, many different ways. It could be living rough, somebody living outside. It could be somebody living on a couch, uh, you know, sleeping uh, at a friend's place on the floor. So it's hard to define it and say, oh, there it is. That's homelessness. Let's fix it. Um, so when we fundraise, I always point up the need for not only boots on the ground support, but physical support as well. And so as the weather gets colder, we do uh, have uh, warm up rooms that have been established. Yes, indeed, the police station in Coburg is no longer available, uh, but I believe we now do have a warm up room in the Knights of Columbus Hall uh, that uh, covers the span overnight. 
unfortunately, COVID puts a little bit of a spanner in the works in that that, of course, will have to be sanitized and properly dealt with during the day. So folks can move. I believe the Lions Centre, David could correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but that uh, will be a temporary warm-up shelter for the daytime. Having said that, it's one thing to have these services in place. It's quite another to be able to support them and help people find those locations. So that's the boots on the ground. In terms of supporting that, a huge chunk of the fundraising that we do for coldest night of the year goes directly into our outreach programs at Greenwood Coalition so that that can financially support what we hope will put people in the right direction. David, did you like yeah. to add to that? Yeah, sure, yeah, just uh, um, a bit more on the, the timing of um, the um, overnight shelter, warming room uh, space. Uh, it's not, not actually shelter. <clears throat> the, the specific definition is an emergency respite center um, because it, it, it doesn't have you know, beds or cot, that kind of thing. But, uh, um, as, uh, as Phil mentioned, in partnership with the county and St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, we were able to open the overnight uh, warming room at the Columbus Centre on the 21st of, of um, December. And, uh, and it looks like the daytime warming space uh, will open on uh, January 18th, uh, Monday. Um, at the Lion Center. And so that's very encouraging. Um, every community, uh, you know, regardless of, of what they have available, if they're a compassionate community, they want to be able to say, worst case scenario, you find yourself outdoors on a January day, night, here's a place where you can go. And the list of places where anyone can go right now is pretty short. And, uh, and, and it was even more so um, on Boxing Day and, and New Year's Day, the lockdown came into effect uh, at the beginning of that on a holiday. And, uh, you know, you literally couldn't walk through a coffee shop uh, uh, to warm up for a couple of minutes and so we had to make other accommodations those days so we can in Northumberland we can point to these um, these two locations um, they're made available through provincial emergency funding and so we're able to set these up and run them as a pilot and do that properly um, but as Phil said uh, um, you know there's a a lot of pieces outside of that and uh, there's no there's no plan in place from from the province to support this kind of work beyond the end of march and uh, so part of the discussion we're having now we we uh we open open these spaces up and then immediately we're having uh, discussions about an exit strategy uh, what happens when when this closes? What can we do? Is there a community approach? What have we learned? What what are the needs? How much does it take the staff? Uh, you know, can we work with volunteers? Can uh, you know what sorts of spaces are available? And um, so that, that's uh, um, that's kind of you know, and this is, this is the other end of the spectrum from where we started talking today about getting someone into their own home. Um, this is um, uh, making sure. That that somebody you know doesn't freeze to death uh, on a winter night uh, on the far end of the, the uh, housing spectrum. 
David, public education, public education is another aspect of Greenwood's work. Uh, what is being done there? Because uh, I, I know that's a, an important aspect of what you're trying to do is to help everyone better understand some of these uh, social issues that we face. Yeah, yeah, no, the, uh, yeah, thanks for pointing that out because that is, um, it is really important to us. Um, our interest is in in building a, a community that um, is is healthy and activated in a in a way that there's less reliance upon um, you know social services and and things like that. And and there's a lot of work to be done there. And and as you say, it starts with with awareness and and education. And so we, I mean, we. Greenwood, we, we'll pick up the pieces. We'll we'll run the emergency shelter if that's what's needed to to get people out of the cold tonight. Um, but what we what we really want to do is that kind of community building uh, uh, in, the, in the bigger picture. And so we did a um, we did a series in uh, November and December uh, online um, uh, part of our Community 101 series, uh, which is a, an education and sort of community engagement. We had three films, uh, documentary films that um, were made available for people to watch, followed by a, a panel discussion about that film with, with some of the filmmakers, with participants, etc. And those were looking at homelessness, at uh, um, the disconnection uh, uh, that uh, some women experienced at uh, women's prison. And um, and just the uh, the housing crisis on the on the began understanding uh, what what's going on in the real estate world, not only in our community but all over the world, and how that's impacting our ability to house everyone. And so those, those are um, you know some higher level um, conversations, but um, uh, we think that those are are really important uh, again in activating a community because we we always when we do those things we always have people come forward. And and, and say, hey, you know, this is what I do, or this is my background, this is my experience. How can I contribute um, to this? So, over the the, uh, the next few months, we we have a number of sessions that could be, you know, under the the uh, banner of of community engagement, training, etc. Um, that uh, we want to dig down in with with some of the um, some people who just they want to more time and effort into this kind of work. Phil. How, if I've been listening to this and I, I would like to participate in the coldest night, what should I do? Well, it's very easy, uh, actually, for anyone with a computer. Um, there are several ways uh, to sign up. Uh, the best way, once someone has decided they'd love to help us, is to go to the national website, um, and that is cnoy.org slash port hope that will get you right to our fundraising page uh, it's easy to follow a mouse click uh, is all you need to register uh, you can register as a team uh, should someone put their name forward as a captain they can form that team and that's really forming the backbone of our walkers we really depend on team captains uh, and walkers uh, so that's the best way that I can suggest that people sign up. Again, that's cnoy.org slash Port Hope. 
Should anyone wish any further information, I can be reached at 905-376-4771. And uh, that's my cell phone and folks can get in touch with me. If they wish to use an email trail, our email is cnoyporthope at gmail.com. Those are the best ways. Uh, It's very simple to sign up. All donations can be made uh, by credit card or check. One difference this year, uh, we are not accepting cash donations at all, either at the walk or prior to that. So that's the one little drawback this year. Should people wish to donate that way, I urge them to use my phone number 905-376-4771 and I can always uh, personally collect cash donations and then transfer them over through my account. So it's not all lost, but it's very easy to sign up. Just check out that website. Now, besides the coldest night, what other activities should we be watching for in the upcoming months? Um, one thing that, uh, um, that is taking um, uh, some of our attention um, uh, with our staff and, uh, and some of our members that volunteer uh, is we're um, uh, continuing to do home delivery of meals. We started this in August uh, because we're not able to do the community dinner. So don't watch for the community dinner anytime soon. I'm not sure. I'm not sure when something like community dinner will ever be uh, um, available again. But what we've been doing is uh, is home delivering uh, with a. Uh, delivery, um, a bit of a wellness check-in with folks and, uh, um, and doing that every week. And so we're doing about 100 a week uh, of those, um, primarily um, through Port Hope at the moment, and uh, others are doing some of that in, uh, in other areas. Um, and uh, and I, we've, got a, we've got a couple of uh, um, sort of larger projects uh, um, coming up we'll be sort of sharing with, with the community. Um, when, one large project is, um, is a partnership with the University of Toronto looking at the opioid issue and they're going to be um, um, studying our model uh, and, uh, um, and how this um, community-driven approach to reducing the harms of, of opioids um, happen. And um, so, so a number of those things will, will be sort of our activity. Um, in, in terms of, of community events, um, we're, we're looking to do some more online Community 101 events. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in digging a little deeper into this kind of work and, and, and learning more about it to contact us and and get on our mailing list. We have a, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a, um, a monthly newsletter that goes out and, uh, and, and it describes sort of opportunities for engagement, which are you know, very different at the moment. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm looking at this as we look forward to, you know, the pandemic um, being over or being lessened in, in effect, that um, we, we have an opportunity until then to, to think about what kind of a what kind of a world, what kind of a community we want to be building beyond that, and so there's a, a little bit of a chance to to hunker down and uh, have some discussions, learn some things, do some reading, and, and so we can we can help with those things for for anyone who who you know really wants to commit themselves uh, um, this kind of work. Uh, we would appreciate um, 
opportunity. Had a great conversation yesterday with uh, with uh, a couple of folks from a rural area that um, want to figure out how they can do this um, kind of work with their neighbors, look after each other a little better. And uh, so we're always open to that kind of conversation as well. Phil Redford, David Sheffield, thank you so much for talking to me today. A pleasure, Robert. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Robert. It has been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Phil Redford, the event chair for the Coldest Night of the Year Walk in Northumberland, and David Sheffield, Executive Director of the Greenwood Coalition. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this.